0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Sola, a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local rep, go to renasola.us or give them a call at 415 570 two six four seven. For the week of April twenty third, twenty fifteen, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I'm Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, are we past the point of no return for renewables? We'll talk with the clean tech investment guru about the industry's bumpy ride to the top. Then we'll look at the backlash in the UK against the Conservative Energy Manifesto this election season, and we'll finish off with a conversation about the US government's landmark Quadrennial Energy Review. It's got a super boring title, I know, but this is a -a first-of-a-kind document that is a pretty big deal. And speaking of pretty big deals, here in Washington, D.C. is Catherine Hamilton, my co-host and a partner at 38 North Solutions. Catherine, you're like... One of the only people I can think of who get all giddy giddy inside when they hear quadrennial energy review.
1: You bet. Although I am giddier at the fact that I'm going to go see the Nats play the cards this afternoon.
0: (laughs) Here (laughs) we go with our sports talk again. We've had European (laughs) listeners who say that our American sports talk is very boring. But (laughs) we can't help ourselves. Mention the words power purchase agreement or business model innovation or dividend yield. And you'll surely get uh, co-host Jigger Shaw revved up. Jigger's is the president of Generate Capital, and he is in New York City. How are you, sir? I'm doing great.
2: I'm are- doing great.
0: You are in New York, right? Or you- I am in New York. Okay. Well, let's meet our guest coming to us from London. It is Michael Liebreich, the founder of Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Michael is one of the sharpest people when it comes to understanding and uh, communicating clean tech business trends, and we're going to harness that on the show this week. Michael... Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Welcome to the Energy Gang.
3: I'm very well. I'm very well. Great to be with you.
0: Good to talk to you again. And before we do talk energy, we need to talk about an equally important topic in my eyes, skiing. Many people may not realize that you actually competed in uh, the Moguls in the 1992 Olympics for Great Britain. I've got a picture of you in here in front of me in which you're wearing this bright yellow ski suit catching some big air in the mogul field and doing what seems like a perfectly executed side twist. What do you miss most about competitive skiing? The thrill of competition or those bright ski suits?
3: Ah, well, that's a really good question because um, I caught a little stick uh, yesterday on Twitter for not being cool because I ski and I don't snowboard. But, you know, when, when I was doing that, nobody told me that a bright yellow ski suit would one day be seen as not very, very cool. Um, what can I say? I can only apologize, but, um, no, I was, when I quit, I was ready to quit. I had done everything. I, I'd achieved everything I could, which was, you know, it was good. Um, I was a good midfield place kind of skier in the, uh, in the Olympics. Uh, and I'd done that and I needed to move on.
0: You were working at McKinsey when you were training for the Olympics, right? So which was more stressful training for the Olympics or working at McKinsey?
3: Oh, I mean, everybody was so stressed out at McKinsey. They were so uptight. And then I used to tell them that I'd come back to work just for like a break you know, just to relax, gather my thoughts, that really, that really kind of got up their nose as though I think a little bit.
0: <laughs> so you started New Energy Finance in 2004, making it one of That's- the first to track clean energy deals in any meaningful way for investors. In 2009, you sold it to Bloomberg, which was a sign that mainstream investors and, and big media organizations were taking the industry very seriously. So looking back 11 years ago to 2004, what made you believe that this was a sector worth tracking in such a detailed way, because it was comparatively so small at that time.
3: Well, if you go back to 2003, which is pretty much where I was thinking about what to do next, um, and I had time on my hands because I'd been very involved in technology during the whole um, tech boom-bust cycle, and I actually found myself high and dry. Um, I'd, um, it's a longer story, but I'd fired myself from a venture capital role with Group Arno, and um i'd been waiting for the sector to come back and it's clear it wasn't coming back but i was doing a lot of thinking and it was really clear that on the one hand you had a whole bunch of problems around energy in fact a lot of the world's problems centered on energy um so whether it was geopolitical conflicts there was the um the gulf war the second gulf war whether it was depletion whether it was climate change which was just uh, i think it was the third ipcc report um there were all these issues But then I knew, because I'd been working in technology, that there were also all these solutions. Um, And it was, if you just, I I, I had the closest thing I have to a religious belief is actually the experience curve that pushes down costs. So I could see that wind is going to get cheaper, solar is going to get cheaper, the cost of control, so the Internet of Things uh, is going to get cheaper and cheaper to control all of these energy assets. And so it seemed pretty clear to me that there was going to be a crossover at some point. Um, and once you have that thought, you kind of have to act on it. You have to do something. it burns a hole in your head so that 's where that 's why I started the business
0: so let 's talk about some of the numbers the recent numbers uh, last year, you tallied three hundred and ten billion dollars in investments globally with nearly half of that going into solar, which was a really major landmark there and distributed solar was a big story, so you know that grew by more than a third last year, representing more than seventy three billion dollars. In investments, And when you first started tracking this, the numbers were, scaled, uh, were skewed pretty heavily toward large-scale projects, um, particularly in wind. And I'm just curious if you think we're undergoing a, uh, another structural investment shift to more distributed on-site technologies, perhaps led by PV.
3: Well, certainly the mix of investment has changed very much um, since we first produced some figures for overall clean energy investment. Um, if you go back all the way to 2004, the only mainstream or even vaguely mainstream sector was wind. And so it was larger projects and it was wind. Um, and then we've gone through different waves. You'll remember, of course, there was the whole biofuels uh, surge in 2005, uh, six, 2006, 2007. Um, and then I think you've got a really strong move by solar. But also the whole um, energy efficiency side for the first time – this year, we've tracked how much is being invested through government programs in energy efficiency. So it's a minority of energy efficiency spend, um, doesn't include everything individuals do or corporates do within the bowels of their organization. And we've got 50 billion of that. Now, that's a that's a very rapid growing sector. And, of course, smart grid. And I think we're going to be seeing some power storage investment growing. You know, it's it's been sort of bubbling along and coming through, but it's going to start to get pretty big. So the mix does change. Um, And, you know, this is an ecosystem shift. So as the ecosystem has to kind of shift from the way we used to do things to the way we're going to do things, of course, you you need to see investment in multiple sectors of that ecosystem,
1: yeah, Michael, It's I love your conference, by the way. I, I went to it this year and I've been many, many years and it's really my favorite out there. I learn something new every single time. And a few years ago, one of your analysts did a report on LED lighting. It was sort of the new thing. And all of a sudden, you can buy LED lighting in you know, in the drugstore on the corner. You can just get it anywhere. So it, it strikes me that your analysts are always kind of looking around the corner, you know, what's going to be the next thing. And this year's conference, I was only able to go for a day. But some of the things that you were talking about, even last year, some of the storage technologies, this year was so much more tangible what was going on. Did you sense that as well about some of these new technologies?
3: Oh, for sure. And um, It's not just the technologies, but it's also the business models and um... you know when you say we're always on the lookout for the new thing i would say that actually at bloomberg new energy finance we're probably better it's not the horizon that we keep our eye on it's kind of when things start to get a bit, uh, a bit more tangible so we're really good at the costs and the policy and the financing of what's actually happening out there what's you know what's 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 starting to break through um, so it's not the kind of high high tech stuff uh, but yes so there are business models you know there was third party uh, solar ownership models which, which jigger knows much more about than, than anybody, um, but now you know we 're talking about uh, demand response we 're talking about prepaid solar in the developing world, and all this stuff was sort of theoretical a year or two a, a, ago is now actually starting to uh, starting to be adopted
2: so Michael, put two and two together for me when you look at your uh your keynote this year, you talked a little bit about coal and you also talked about uh, foreign reserves and how Saudi Arabia and Russia might be able to handle their foreign reserves issue with the oil prices going down, but Venezuela can't. But, so how does that tie together in terms of the future of coal? I mean, it, it appears to me that for India, it's not really that they're going to be anti-coal. It's more just that um, you know doing homegrown energy and electricity technologies is a far better use of their foreign reserves than importing coal from Australia.
3: Let me start with um, you know, what I talked about in my keynote, which is that we're in an era where the cost of producing power, producing electricity, um, from all sorts of different technology have never been lower. So you've got cheap, obviously you've got cheap oil, but really for power purposes, for electricity, we're talking about gas. And the cost of gas has dropped dramatically in Europe and Asia um, to follow what's happened in the US a few years ago. Um, you've also, of course, now got cheap renewables and you've also got the technologies to bind it all together really um lower dropping in cost and there's there's a huge investment going on in the, uh, the grid stage but also microgrids and so on so we're now in an era of energy abundance in a way that we've not been uh for decades if ever this is the first time when you look at coal and you say you know gosh we really could get off it on an accelerated uh time scale without taking such a huge economic penalty um, as would have been the case five or ten years ago. Now, there's all sorts of technologies needed that you have to actually get or you have to build the distribution to get it to the, to the customer um, and to make sure that you can ride through intermittencies and so on. But it is now possible to see an economic future for a place like India without exploiting huge amounts of coal. And I think that's apparent to the Modi government. That's a
0: really good point because we debate a lot about how effective renewables are in creating an industrialized society, right? So when we think about a planet with 11 billion people, there are a lot of people who say wind and solar and biomass and hydro and biogas are not enough and that you need coal and nuclear and natural gas to help emerging economies truly morph into industrialized societies. Okay,
3: well, you brought brought nuclear into the mix as well and natural gas and... The place where I am is I can really see how we can do without coal. I'm finding it very hard to see how we can do without natural gas and nuclear, at least for a very long time. And I think it's important to remember that, first of all, you have – it's not just that, of course, the sun doesn't shine at night, and so, but that you can probably deal with. But you do have weeks where there's no wind. You have winters where there's very little sun at all. And also, electricity is less than a third of the world's energy mix. So it's all very well to love solar, but you know, in the UK, for instance, how are you going to heat your houses? Right? We are a long way from being able to do that um, using renewable resources. So I think we've got to look at renewable energy with natural gas, with nuclear, super efficiency, smart grid, electric vehicles. And it all starts to come together, and you can see how that would work as a mix, not just for the UK, but also how that would work and and enable the developing world to industrialize.
2: Right, but Michael, I think that, I mean, part of what you were saying in your keynote, though, was that the tobacco industry really had growth markets in the emerging markets. And I thought you insinuated that you thought the coal industry had growth markets in the emerging markets. Are you now saying that with gas and Nuclear renewables. Do you think we can actually arrest the growth of coal in emerging markets?
3: Yeah, I think that's exactly what I was saying. So, um, and I think there was this period where growth stopped in tobacco uh, in the West because the health uh, issues became well known, well understood. The programs were starting to be well designed to stop kids smoking and to get people off smoking, and the companies essentially focused elsewhere and developed new markets. they were new, newly affluent societies. Uh, where the rates of smoking were taking off. And so they shifted their emphasis. And I think that's the risk that you see that um, in the coal industry. It's more than a risk. It's a reality. Um, And I think that, as I say, for the first time now, we can see that that's that's not the necessary future. It is possible to see a future for those countries where they simply say, why would we go that route? And then in 20 years, Our cities are going to be horribly polluted. We're going to have all the same issues uh, that the developed world has had. And we're just going to have to um, strand those assets and move to a new system, should we not leapfrog. And I think that's a really interesting discussion.
0: You rub elbows with a lot of very intelligent people, a lot of uh, investors who seem to understand this space well. Why are so many investors confusing oil with, say, solar and wind. And of course, on island nations and in remote areas, uh, when you use diesel generators, oil prices do have a a direct impact on distributed solar, say. But uh, largely, these markets are separate. And I'm just curious if you see a lot of confusion among the investors that uh, you deal with.
3: I do see a lot of confusion uh, amongst investors and not just investors but analysts and you know even energy analysts you think would know better they say oh renewables is in trouble because the oil price has dropped and you know as you say island nations absolutely where island nations will be using diesel fuel oil uh, and it's direct competition kuwait saudi arabia they're burning a lot of oil to generate electricity and then uh distributed power out in mining camps uh or where people are using kerosene for lighting and so on but that's pretty much it um, Otherwise, renewable energy, I suppose you've got biofuels, of course biofuels, electric vehicles compete with oil, but the bulk of renewable energy is electricity, and it competes with coal, and it competes with gas, and it competes with nuclear. But But don't forget also, in their defense, that gas contracts, gas pricing has for the longest time been pretty closely linked. Or very, completely linked in much of the market to uh, oil prices. So there is a kind of linkage there. But yeah, when I read an article that says the oil price has dropped and renewables must therefore be in trouble, I just, you know, I just, I, I kind of, I, I must say, I do a sort of forehead palm or a head, a, a, you know, forehead slap because it's just lazy thinking, frankly.
0: All of our foreheads are red. We all yeah. do the same. <laughs>
3: Do you, do you know what? There's a, actually, there's another factor which I think is underestimated, and that is that a lower oil price is extremely good for the world's economy. Um, and what we're seeing, and this is something else I talked about in the keynote at, uh, at our summit, was the amount of money that's not going to go to the oil-producing nations that's going to stay within uh, Europe, North America, or particularly the U.S., and Asia, uh, India is one of the biggest. You know, it's, it's growing to be one of the biggest importers, and a drop in oil price and gas price, of course, is incredibly good for those countries. Now, those three regions are extremely productive uh, economically, um, and so what you're doing is you're taking. A, we reckon it's about nine hundred billion dollars a year and instead of pushing it into Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf, uh, Russia, the oil-producing and gas-producing countries. You're keeping it within these incredibly productive economies. That's going to be really good for the world's economy. And I think that that feeds back into clean energy because, frankly, clean energy, we've seen when macro conditions are good, investment in clean energy grows. And when there's a recession or when macro conditions are bad, clean energy suffers. So I think the lower oil price is going to have a perversely good effect on clean energy.
2: So Michael, your last slide of your keynote really talks about the clean energy capital requirement to 2030, which um, which you've been involved in from the World Economic Forum paper you wrote in 2010 and, and beyond, or I guess 2009 in the run-up to Copenhagen. I'm curious um, whether you think that the gap between what we're currently investing in clean energy and what we need to invest is really in those other areas that you – believe we haven't really yet tackled, which is heating and transportation. I mean, do you really think that electricity can really fill that entire gap um, of investment criteria where we have to be at, you know, let's say $500 billion next year? Um, It seems to me like we actually need alternatives to oil and alternatives to heating to catch up.
3: That's a, that's a great question and it's kind of what's, what's fun is trying to do this in, in a sense on radio or on a podcast because I can wave my hands and I, I usually have charts to explain this. What you're referring to is a chart that showed it was actually something we produced uh, in 2008, which showed that in the sectors we track, you need about 600 or 700 billion dollars a year invested if the emissions from the energy sector are going to turn the corner by 2020. Uh, now it wasn't the whole energy sector; it was just the, the bits we track. So it's very consistent with uh, the clean trillion, which series talked about last year, that you really need to see those sorts of orders of magnitude of investment. And where we've got to is this figure of around three hundred billion. So you'd really need to see a doubling uh, in the sectors that we were tracking then. And then, of course, what you're highlighting is there's a whole bunch of other stuff um, around heating and transport and. Here's how I see that. Broadly speaking, the energy sector breaks down into three. You've got electricity, you've got transportation, and you've got heating, whether it's for residential, commercial, or industrial processes. And electricity, I actually think the transformation to clean energy and electricity is pretty much done. Now, there's 20 years of grunting and shoving before we actually you know before it sort of you know before it before it's largely completed but we know what it's going to look like it's pretty clear and it's clear that the transformation is happening it's clear what the destination is now I think that the next one out of the traps is going to be transportation I think where we are on transportation today is about where we were with electricity when I started new energy finance in 2004 because you can kind of see what a lot of the solutions look like, but they're all still very subscale and you know almost mockably subscale. There was another slide that I showed at the summit where I looked at 1.2 billion vehicles in use around the world, and there's only 750,000 electric vehicles. And the relative scale, if one looks like a car, the other one looks like a toy. The electric vehicles looks like a toy by comparison. But you can already see the shape of transportation and obviously on the board of transport for London, I do a lot of work on transportation in cities and the current configuration is unacceptable. So it's kind of where you were when I started New Energy Finance, where you had a bunch of problems in the world, which were really clear emerging that everybody was starting to acknowledge them. And you had a bunch of solutions which we could see we're going to get to scale I think transportation is going to get, in 10 years' time, we will know exactly the future of transportation. And then that leaves heat and process where it's really, it's a tough one because, frankly, the solutions are pretty simple. It's insulation, number one, number two, insulation, and number three, insulation. We're just wasting huge amounts of energy, and we've just got to figure out what the incentives are, how to get rid of the stickiness, is it regulation? Is it incentives? How do we solve that heat part? Um, and you know, there's CHP and there's some technologies that can come in, but broadly speaking, it's about figuring out the human behavior and the stickiness. I think it'll be a longer one, but we can get it done. In, in 30 years, it will have been transformed. I've got no question.
1: Um, Michael, I have a question then about policy as a follow-on to that, because certainly the transformation of the electric sector, transportation and heating are all very dependent on getting the policies right. And so let's assume we can agree on some goals, which I think we haven't yet agreed on those. Like, what is the goal? Is the goal to you know, prevent two-degree rise? What is the overarching goal? And then how do we get there with policy? But I would love to hear you talk a little bit about to, the different types of policy that you think are out there. I know you have referred before to right-wing and left-wing policies. Um, I, I don't view them exactly that same way, but I would love to hear a little bit more from you on what kinds of policies you think are going to get us there. Well, I don't mean to hijack your question,
0: Catherine, but this feeds in nicely to something that I wanted to to ask him about, and that was what you think um, are the most effective conservative policies, right? Because as Catherine mentioned, you sort of talked about in an essay last March that um, clean energy had wrong-footed conservatives, and and you called on them to get their mojo back, and you said that the big mistake of the right was to, quote, leave unchallenged the assumption that leftist tools are the only ones available to manage the transition. So just following up on Catherine's point, what are the most effective conservative policies for promoting clean tech?
3: Okay, so let me start by talking to the, um, you know, this question, is is the goal two degrees? Um, And I I suppose, you know, there are many goals. I'm motivated by that goal. I'm also motivated by the goal of trying to save people money. And I'm motivated by um, pollution in the cities and I'm motivated by um, geopolitical stability. There's lots of different goals. The, the problem with seeing it purely through the climate lens is then you go through the next stage as you say, oh, well, there's a carbon budget. And if there's a carbon budget, the most important thing is to get India and America in a room and they can divide it up between them. Well, I guarantee you, you will never get agreement. The discussion you should have between India and America and between China and America and so on is how do you leapfrog how do you bend the curve how do you decarbonize how do we work together um, on because once you start to work together, you get the learning and once you get the learning, then you drive down the cost curve and you can actually solve the problem so I think I think we're, we need to be more nuanced about the, the the goals now, how I link that back to this question of sort of leftist versus, versus rightist or, or uh, uh, statist versus, versus liberal or whatever, is that the idea of this kind of top-down, you know, single mission, two degrees, then there's a budget, then we'll divide it up, it's a very sort of clunking and centralized way of doing things. And I think it will fail. And if you look at the, um, you look at the uh, policies at a lower level, then you see feed-in tariffs. Feed-in tariffs are enormously comforting for somebody who wants to keep control at the centre. What could be better? You have a department that sets prices. There's no messiness of markets. You don't have to trust anybody that you don't control. The problem is it is state control of prices, and what happens is the bureaucrats get gamed by the industry. They set the prices too high, or if they set them too low, nothing happens. If they set them too high, you get this boom. Uh, everybody's making money. Uh, which we've seen, and of course, the people suffering are the taxpayer and the consumer. And eventually, you get a revolt, as we saw in Spain, as we pretty much saw in Germany, with competitiveness uh, being lost, and the whole thing comes grinding to a halt. We know how to do this stuff, right? Go back to the telecoms industry in the 1980s. If you would have at that time, it took six months to get a telephone line installed, and it didn't matter how many bureaucrats you threw at the problem. You were never going to get the telephone lines installed more quickly. Liberalization, innovation, new players, and what happened? We suddenly get things coming. Skype, we're, having this, we're doing this podcast on, on Skype. Tell me which bureaucrat would have come up with Skype. Tell me which bureaucrat would have come up with Jigga and the rooftop solar model. The answer is you know, just unthinkable. Elon Musk is not a product of a centrally planned economy. And so I think if you look at what we need to do from a policy point of view, we've got to, there's a lot of, you have to first push the, you have to push the stone uphill to get it, you know, you you can't just say, well, just let the market deal with everything. The trick is to know at what point you deregulate and let the new players come in and they will take the technologies, combine them in different ways, invent new business models but you have to allow them to do that. You have to create space for them to do that. And I think all policy needs to be seen through the lens, or all all energy policy should be seen through the lens of, number one, does it retain a price signal? Does it drive a price signal through the market? Number two, does it let new entrants in? If you do those two things, I'm pretty sure you'll speed up this transition.
2: Well, amen. I obviously agree with you 100 percent on <laughs> all of that stuff. I, you know, I, I'm curious, though. One of the things that happened, I think, yesterday, which I thought was really big news, was that President Obama actually described climate change as one of the largest opportunities um, of our lifetime, which I've been sort of saying for years. But um, but I think he finally said it. I think you're going to see Prime Minister Modi say that uh, this summer. Um, doesn't that really change the landscape? I mean, isn't the real problem with the climate that everyone has been describing it as shared sacrifice as opposed to the largest wealth creation opportunity of our generation?
3: Look, you're talking to somebody who, in 2004 when I started New Energy Finance. It was a pretty simple thesis that there was a transition. And instead of talking about it as a threat uh, and as a negative and, as you say, shared sacrifice, um, that, that transition, we serve people who wanted to make money out of it and who saw it as an opportunity. Um, I'm very nervous about characterizing the whole of the transition or the whole of dealing with climate change as a wonderful bonanza money-making, fill-your boots, money-making opportunity. Because you know, the fact is that we're actually going to we're we're going to have to destroy, we're gonna have to retire a whole bunch of assets that were perfectly productive, still are perfectly productive, and shift to something new. So we are taking a chunk of um, of our wealth and of our talent and investing it in a problem which in the developed world at least we largely thought was solved and we do that at the expense of other sectors so I'm not sure if I like this kind of it's a wonderful I think I think, sort of I don't know I, we're gonna have we, it's gonna happen anyway it's gonna happen because of pollution it's gonna happen because of security it's gonna happen because the new technologies are cheaper than the old it's just gonna happen And when once you get the idea, I think here's the thing. I think once you're absolutely sure that there's going to be the transition, then whether you're an individual or a company or a government, immediately you start thinking, okay, when do I make the switch? How do I play this transition? How can I benefit during the transition? But we shouldn't try and pretend that there won't be losers as well. There absolutely will be losers.
0: When did you start feeling that way? That you thought that the shift was inevitable? Was it? at the very beginning when you really started understanding these
3: markets or has that been relatively recent? I I think that when I started New Energy Finance, I thought that the shift was inevitable. What I couldn't say was whether the shift would take 100 years or 70 years or 50 years. Um, I don't think I even thought of 30 years or 20 years. So when I started New Energy Finance, unconventional renewables and not um, traditional biomass and large hydro was such a tiny proportion. It was sub-1%, wind and solar, in the electricity mix. And I thought, you know what? It's absolutely clear because of the, tri- the drivers that we've got, it will grow to 15% you know, in my lifetime, in my economic life. And it'll be, that's a fabulous growth, you know, 15x growth in my career. I can, I can serve uh, an industry sector with information. I'll make a great business. I'll make a career for myself. It'll be fine. But you know what? We got to huge, the numbers we're at now, I don't know where it is globally, it's somewhere of the order of 10%, and that's just 10 years later. And it's, you know, look at uh, Germany, 28, 29% renewable electricity. The UK, I know in your next segment, you're going to have, you know, you have people dumping on the Tories and saying that they don't like renewable energy. Well, I'll tell you what, on the Tories' watch, renewable electricity went to 19% in the UK, right? So they must be doing something right. And, you know, we've seen around the world much faster development in renewable electricity, certainly, uh, than was anticipated. So I guess I thought it was inevitable. Now I think it's inevitable, but it'll be much quicker than we thought back then.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. I wish we could have you for the second segment as well. Michael Liebreich is the chairman of the advisory board at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, the organization that he founded back in 2004. He joined us from London. Uh, A great pleasure, sir. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, and I'll, uh, I'll hang up now. It's great talking to you. Thanks, okay. Michael. Thanks, Michael.
0: Before we get into the second half of the show, let's get a quick word in here about our sponsor, Renasola. So all you solar installers out there, and I know there are many of you, listen up. Renesola is now offering a bundled equipment solution, and you've heard us talk about this on the podcast before. The company manufactures and distributes solar panels, inverters, and racking systems, and it puts them all together to help you make your operations more efficient. Think about the savings and procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S., and 40 global subsidiaries, so it's really easy to get product. To find your local rep and figure out how to get products delivered to you overnight, go to renaSola.us or give them a call at 415-570-2647. And thanks to Sola for sponsoring the show. UK parliamentary elections are coming up on May 7th, and in the weeks leading up to voting, the different parties have released their manifestos. Controversy arose last week when the ruling Conservative Party put out its plan and called for an end to support for onshore wind and increased support for gas and nuclear. Five years ago, Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron said he wanted to create the greenest government ever. Since then, the uh, Green Bank has scaled up significantly. Renewables, as uh, Michael Liebreich said, reached 19% of electricity generation, and strong greenhouse gas production commitments have uh, been created. Uh, But renewables advocates say the conservative party's manifesto is hypocritical and doesn't go far enough. um, And because it supports technologies like gas and nuclear and takes away support for wind. Um, Jager, what do you think of the plan here? Did you read through the manifesto? Do you think critics are right? Or do you agree with Michael that they're overblowing things?
2: Well, I mean, first... I don't like the word manifesto, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. Like it just sort of reminds me of an era that's lost. Um, you know, I, I, I've been following the UK for a long time. And I think that uh, it's important, I think, for folks to realize that I don't think that the Conservative Party actually had an energy plan. Um, I think that what happened was they hired David Mackay. To come into the government, he was the guy who wrote the book that got pretty famous, which is "Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air," and it, and that book is actually quite well written. It's really good. It basically is a book around what 100% renewable energy really means: how many windmills, how many solar panels, how many things. And you know, and the funny thing is, is that he actually, when he came into office, really hated solar. Um, and he slashed solar feed-in tariffs. And then what happened was the solar industry innovated so quickly that it was it figured out after a couple of lawsuits how to actually live with the lower feed-in tariffs so do i give the conservative government credit for that i don't know right i'm not sure that they really knew what they were doing in that area but i think this current document isn't bad i you know like i think i've said in the show a number of times i don't have a problem with phasing out subsidies for mature technologies and i think onshore wind is a mature technology in the uk
0: Yep, I, i totally agree I think that there is a little bit of um, hypocritical language in here because they talk about getting rid of subsidies for wind, but then they talk about supporting nuclear, the the Hinkley nuclear plant, which um, I think was in 2013, the government agreed to provide double uh, wholesale electricity prices for that plant. If it ever gets built. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of contradiction there. I will say, though, think think about what the Tories are proposing here. They're pushing for environmental cleanup, for better animal welfare laws, for smart infrastructure, like roads and bridges that limit environmental impact. just going through the list here. Uh, Marine habitat protection. I mean, those are things that liberal Democrats would run on in this country. And uh, the, the George H.W. Bush would have run. Oh, well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, but their system is so different. If you look at just the conservatives, you know, if you look at their full manifesto, you know, they're they do countrywide health care and child care. I mean, they just have a very different system. And so when you look mm-hmm. at what's really conservative about it, well, they're lowering taxes, doing some anti-immigration stuff. So that's kind of lines up with what our conservatives do. But the conservatives in our country Want to shut down the wind turbines altogether? They don't want you know at least you know in in the UK they admit that this has been an, a great huge clean source of energy. One thing, uh, Stephen, that speaking of the hypocrisy, and I was kind of curious what you all thought is that one of the things that they said on wind is that the locals would have final say on wind farm applications. Um, they did not say that on in the issue of fracking and yet in the public view um in the uk my understanding is that wind is much much more popular than fracking so i'm just curious how that how that plays out too yes
0: i that those two things stood out for me it was taking away subsidies for wind and then supporting lots of subsidies for a new nuclear plant and then uh requiring local planning boards to approve wind projects but saying nothing about fracking that definitely stood out for me. The rest of the document read great to me. I mean, I was really impressed with the, the positions of the Tories, but uh, there were certainly some contradictions in there that I think are worth noting. Well, I'm
2: also not against, I mean, I don't find it hypocritical to subsidize nuclear. I'm not against doing that. I just want people to be honest about why it needs subsidies, right? I mean, I, I think that when you think about the cost of nuclear power, they've, it's gotten a lot more expensive. And you could say, well, it's because of regulation or it's because of this or that or whatever. But its it has gotten a lot more expensive. So has, by the way, new coal plants. I mean, the new coal plant that Jim Rogers is, was trying to build in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, came, in, came in at $7 billion per 1,000 megawatts. And so that raised rates. And so that is a subsidy. And so I don't have a problem subsidizing nuclear. What I have a problem with is that is folks, like we talked about in a previous shows, sort of bashing renewables while supporting nuclear? I think we need to do both and we need to figure out what the financial supports have to be if we're going to build a nuclear plant.
1: Well, and also if you compare what they wrote to what the Green Party and Liberal Democrats wrote, you know, the Liberal Democrats have raising efficiency standards, um, reducing, uh, you know, shutting down coal for zero carbon and having many more EVs through green transportation. So they have much more kind of spelled out policy suggestions in their position than this. Some of this stuff is a little bit mushy and I'm not really sure how it's going how it would go. But the the good news is, is that Cameron has committed to the climate change targets. I mean, you know, if he's still there, when they go to Paris, you know, maybe he can lean a little bit on some of our folks.
0: Yeah, think about that. The conservative party, people are whining about getting rid of onshore subsidies and leaving out solar in the language. But when it comes down to it, they're talking about beefing up the Green Bank, continuing their carbon reduction goals and supporting a range of technologies that can get them there.
2: The the other thing I just want to make sure we highlight is that the U.K. is by far the most advanced utility 2.0 regulatory scheme in the world. And so when you look at what REV is doing in New York or folks in California others are thinking about, everyone is studying the U.K. The U.K. moved to outcomes-based regulation a while ago. And so I, I just, you know, I do think that the U.K., frankly, has done a lot of fantastic Work. Um, you know, one place where they're horrible is in insulation, 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 as Mike, Michael Liebrecht talked about. Um, their boiler efficiencies and home insulation values are horrible uh, for a heating country. But. Well,
0: the Tories did mention they wanted to insulate another million homes by 2020. But uh, the program that has been helping out with those uh, insulation installations has been uh, run pretty terribly. So yep. they've been way under their goals thus far. Yeah. I
1: agree. We'll we'll see what happens May 7th.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's go into our third topic, the Quadrennial Energy Review. So every four years since the mid-90s, the U.S. Department of Defense has released a detailed report on military capabilities, on technology trends, emerging threats around the globe. The Quadrennial Defense Review, as it's called, is a way for the government to figure out how to budget for the future. Now the process has finally come to energy. This week, at the request of President Obama a couple years ago, I believe it was a couple years ago, the Department of Energy released the Quadrennial Energy Review looking at current and coming changes in the energy sector. And The report suggests that $3.5 billion will need to be spent over the next decade to make the grid more resilient, more reliable, and more capable of handling distributed generation. Catherine, how significant is this report? It's it's a really strong assessment of what's needed to modernize the the grid uh, and the broader energy sector, the pipeline and transportation sectors. Does it have teeth?
1: Well, I think they were really smart about their focus. So first, they put together this Office of Energy Policy and Systems Analysis, and they got together all of these energy wonks and jocks, really smart people to think about this, to to have a very, very robust stakeholder process. They asked a lot of questions that they wanted answers to, and they did a lot of analysis. And what they decided to focus on, and this is the first report in a four-year, four-report process. But they focused on infrastructure, which I think was really smart because that is something that is a really a federal issue, and you know, we have aging infrastructure. It's something that's very expensive. It has a lot of workforce implications, and then there are all these vulnerabilities to infrastructure, you know, climate, cyber, and physical security. The complexities, uh, supply and demand shifts that all warrant a federal look at it.
0: And that's what Obama outlined in his State of the Union address, a main priority. That's of right. Us.
1: That's right, and the cool thing is that they called it t s and d infrastructure, which I was all for It's transmission storage and distribution infrastructure. so I was pretty psyched that they had storage in it um and so they really talk a lot about the grid of the future, you know they also deal with the pipeline issues, but of course, I was more focused on the grid and you know how the future grid should encourage efficiency, demand response, decentralized power, new business and regulatory models and and the and the recommendations that they came out with were very much in the sweet spot of what the federal government can do, which is analysis and research and coming up, you know, being able to provide resources to regulators. And so I felt like not only did they focus on the right issues, um, on the grid side at least, they also focused on how the federal government actually has a place Uh, to to come up with solutions in those.
0: And so they've set up partnerships with a variety of utilities to get this information out there and help the utilities act on this?
1: Yes, definitely. And a lot of what they talk about is coming up with frameworks and strategies. and, And one of the big issues that I'm looking at is flexibility, because there are all these resources that are that you can consider flexible, like storage and demand response and efficiency, that need to be part of a system that's much bigger than just a set of technologies, you know, plopped together. So I, I liked their approach.
0: This report represents a pretty fascinating shift for me because for years we've been talking about government investments in the renewable generation technologies themselves, right? Getting the costs down. And now with this report, and to a lesser extent with the DOE solicitation for loan guarantees, you know, they're looking at grid integration, we're talking about the investments in the technologies to integrate them and make the grid more capable. And so the the shift is happening, and now the focus needs to be on the grid improvements and and all these integration techniques and technologies we're talking about.
1: Yeah, definitely. I was thinking exactly of the whole inevitability um, line that Michael was using and thinking that when I met with the folks at EPSO on numerous occasions and provided comments to them, that a lot of what I said was, you know, you guys have done – so much of the original R&D. You have so much data. You have so many learnings. Use that to get us to the next level, because we've got all these projects out there now. All those things that you are the original VCs for are being commercialized. Now, give us all the data to help the regulators make good decisions on that front. So I think that they really, I don't think they're going to give up on R&D, but they're also going to use what they've learned to help, to help us get to that inevitability in, in the smartest way.
2: Well, one question I had for you, Catherine, was whether whether you thought that the dynamics around the QER um, was really sort of even. Like, I mean, it seemed to me like there was a lot of sort of dependency on the electric utility sector where, you know, we sort of know that they've been slow on the uptake in terms of some of these technologies that we really want to see. And, you know, I, 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 for one, would not want to see $20 billion a year being spent every year on T&D willy-nilly without first looking at whether microgrids or storage or other things were cheaper. And I wonder whether you thought that that got into the document.
1: Well, I think it's a fine line because you want innovation. You want all these innovations on the grid edge to go forward without a lot of government intervention. You want people to be able to compete. And so, you know, I, I thought that they kind of stuck to their knitting on what the government should be by all rights, be involved in. Yes, they're going to rely a lot on utilities to be involved, but I don't think that's to the detriment of of all of the democratization that we have on the edge of the grid.
0: So I'm going to admit here that aside from knowing what the Quadrennial Defense Review is, I don't really know how the aftermath works. I don't know how the process works. And I'm curious, um, you know, we've been doing this since 96 or 97. Uh, Has the Quadrennial Defense Review enabled a fundamental shift uh, in how the military thinks about technology procurement and addressing threats. Does anyone know the answer to that question?
1: No, but I do know that a similar exercise was conducted prior to EPACT. So I, there there is a precedent in the Department of Energy for doing reports that then become energy policy. So um, I think that's what this is meant to be. And certainly the Senate and House um, – Committees of Jurisdiction, Senate Energy and Natural Resources and House Energy and Commerce have been watching this very closely to see what is this going to say? What are the policies recommended so that they can potentially find some that they'll be able to move forward? You can find the
0: whole report in the show notes of our podcast page and go over there for links to all the other stories that we talked about. And before we end the show, let's uh, tell our listeners something they do not know. And Jigger, what's your story this week? So –
2: I was looking at this story in the New York Times, which I thought was really brilliantly written, um, about how the U.S. shale drillers are actually overtaking OPEC now as the global swing um, producers. And that in fact, Saudi Arabia is losing its sort of power around um, oil prices around the world. And I just thought it was a fascinating article just because I do think that – As Michael talked about, oil really does matter. I mean you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars um, that was sucked out of all of our global economies, um, which has now been returned with lower oil prices. And um, for the US to have that kind of power, um, it's just a huge shift in my lifetime. We'll see
0: if that power lasts. Catherine, tell us something we don't know.
1: Uh, so two quick things. One is a huge male couple, which was when I was talking about going to Texas and how Daniel Boone fought at the Alamo. Um, that's been bugging me ever since because I just got like this whole coonskin cap confusion going on in my brain. And I knew all along it wasn't Daniel Boone. He died sixteen years before the Alamo. It was Davy Crockett. Um who famously was, it was, a, he was a U.S. House representative from Tennessee, and he basically said, this is a very bastardized version of it, but you can all go to hell, I'm going to Texas. He was the guy who died in the Alamo, Davy Crockett. Uh, so apologies to all of you who actually know about U.S. history. Did anyone call you out on it? Yes, of course. Yeah. Uh, there I are should, people I who sh- listen well, <laughs> and care.
0: Well, one of us should have caught it too. So.
1: <laughs> I know. We're all I guilty should've. here. I did as soon as I said it. But anyway, okay. so here's the thing that everybody needs to watch out for on Monday. Supposedly, we're going to hear from the Supreme Court as to whether they're going to take up order 745 on demand response. So for me, this is a this is a huge thing. We're going to see if. There are sort of three different options. One is that they're going to not take it up and the circuit court uh, decision to vacate order 745 will stand. The second option is that they will decide to take it up. That's, of course, what I'm hoping for, that they'll take it up because it is a matter of public policy. And the third option is that they'll do something like remand it back with instructions to the circuit court. So we're kind of waiting with bated breath on Monday.
0: So last week I was at our solar summit and uh, met with a bunch of people and, and met with a gentleman well met him briefly, who is uh, at one of the largest uh, construction companies in the country that develops renewable energy projects and i won 't say what the company is, but we were talking about the PTC and he said, "Gosh, I wish you know we I- should just leave the PTC alone." He said the people in the company and many others that he 's talked to believe that they should just let the PTC expire and allow for some level of consistency in the marketplace and This is like the third conversation i 've had on background with people about wishing that the PTC had just expired and that AWIA would move beyond it and try to work on other issues. So, Jigar, I thought you'd find that conversation interesting.
2: Well, I mean, what I find more interesting is that you didn't think I had those conversations separately before I said it.
0: No, what are you talking
2: about? (laughs) I I know you've had those conversations. I've been hearing this for years, not just about the PTC, but also around the ITC. I mean, I think that the number of people who have to jump through crazy hoops to be able to monetize their tax credits, like I think many people would just be like would rather be done with the complications from the tax credits
1: hmm. honestly, the wind industry is there are a lot more worse issues with siting and permitting right now that are going to be much more difficult to re- to deal with financially than the tax credit oh, you but I thought prop- they got all
0: solved by the quadrennial energy review no (laughs) thanks for listening folks that is all for the gang this week for links to the stories we discussed in the show as I mentioned earlier go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast to see our show notes while you're doing that give us a rating in iTunes or send some links over to the people you know word of mouth is a very significant driver of growth for us if you have any questions comments, story ideas, anything at all send them to podcasts at greentechmedia.com Or tweet at us at The Energy Gang. Catherine, have a great week and a good weekend. Nice talking to you.
1: Thanks very much. You too.
0: Jigger, until next time, take care. Absolutely. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.